It's been nearly two months, dear brethren, since I have called you to the second chapter of Titus, which I am calling you back to this afternoon. And while interceding about this message, it occurred to me that in the space of those two months, I personally, and indeed this assembly collectively, have faced some fiery trials, one of which in particular came quite unexpectedly. And as I was reflecting on that reality, realizing how Peter tells us that our adversary, the devil, is constantly roaming about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour, all the more is it pertinent for us to listen to his admonition that we as Christians need to be sober and vigilant. I don't believe that you can walk the walk of faith effectively outside of learning the principles of sober living that the scriptures call us to. And so I bring you to our sixth study out of Titus chapter 2 on the behavior of Christ's body. And as the Lord allows, we will complete our study on sobriety for all. You recognize with me that we've established that the call to sobriety is first brought to the attention to the elder men. But that's because the elder men are supposed to set the example for the rest of the family of God. Because sobriety is something that is also enjoined upon the elder women, the young women, and the young men. Indeed, even the servants that find themselves in that status of life. They are to adorn the gospel with character that is becoming or matching their testimony. Let's listen to the passage, Titus chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. Titus is exhorted by Paul to go to Crete, to set things in order, to fix that which is lacking. And he says, Speak thou the things that become or are in keeping with sound doctrine, that the aged men be sober, grave, temperate, sound in the faith, sound in love, and sound in endurance. And we've stressed that the idea here is that our actual behavior and character must match our doctrine, must match the principles of the Christian faith that we espouse and seemingly believe in because we carry around our Bibles. Maybe we have a confession of faith that we hold to, but however we arrive at our doctrinal stances, we certainly have teaching that takes place from week to week. And the scriptures give us this same idea in other locations. For example, in the Corinthian epistle, Paul says that you may have some of the notable earmarks of the Christian faith, some of the distinctive aspects of the Christian faith, even to the point of speaking in tongues. But he said if you lack a certain thing, in his case he stresses love, in our case we're stressing you may have some of the sort of notable characteristics of Christian doctrine, but if you lack sobriety as an elder man or an elder woman or indeed a young lady or a young man, 
in any case, we become, as it were, a noisy gong and a clanging cymbal. I don't think I need to stress those ideas more thoroughly at this point, having already touched upon them at length in previous studies. The disparity between what our mouths say and what our actions actually are can bring shame to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that is the burden of Titus chapter 2. He wants the young ladies to adorn the gospel. He wants none of us to bring shame to the name of the Lord. Remember with me that in Hebrews chapter 6, the idea of putting the Son of God to open shame is a possibility. There, of course, the context is outright apostasy, but you can have a milder form of apostasy by simply not walking in the way of the Lord and yet carrying His name and bringing shame upon the Christian faith. And so there are two primary points that I'm going to be speaking from this afternoon to enforce upon us the call to sobriety. First of all, I'm going to stress our personal obligations. We should practice personal prohibition. But then I will follow this up with stressing that we should also practice public prohibition. And you will see with me that we are called upon not only to monitor our own sobriety, our own temperateness, our own moderation, our own balance, our own self-control. But we are also to be careful that we do not add to the immoderation, the intemperateness, the foolishness, the recklessness of those that are prone in that direction. We are not to help other people get drunk, in other words. Let's take, first of all, the personal prohibition. In Isaiah chapter 5, in verse 11, we read, Woe unto them that rise up early in the morning, that they may follow strong drink, that they might continue until night, until wine inflame them. Now, this is a character trait that Isaiah is depicting that can have spiritual counterparts. Here we have someone who is in the state of incessant inebriation. They have an addiction. They are alcoholics. There are, of course, those who do suffer from this bondage. But there are also admonitions built into this of a spiritual nature that speak to the inability to control one's character, to control one's speech, to control one's emotions, one's thoughts, one's actions, to live an immoderate, uncontrolled, excessive life in any direction. And what we're going to set before your hearts to contemplate from the illumination of the scriptures is the reality that a lack of sobriety, a lack of moderation, as it relates to alcohol or other substances, and while we do make the spiritual applications, we do not want to just leap over the abuse of alcohol or other substances, because there are those that suffer from that bondage. And the Church of Jesus Christ is to point the way to freedom. Jesus has come to set the captives free. And we are giving you a call to freedom, 
from bondages that occur within your body through the use of natural things, whether it's alcohol again, or some other addiction, maybe it could be nicotine, maybe it could be some medication, maybe it could be food, maybe it could be a habit. We're entering into a little bit more of a spiritual dimension, but maybe you can't get away from the television or from YouTube or from your social media. In any event, the point is, we're going to see from the Word of God that this lack of sobriety itself is the handwriting on the wall that something is going to go awry sooner or later. I'm sure you've heard the statement that money makes the world go round. The Bible does say quite a bit about money. It says it's the root of all evil. If you've noticed, as the world goes around, it is quite evil as it turns with respect to culture and the actions of men. Don't fault me for making that remark. God himself said of the pre-Diluvian age that the thoughts of their hearts are only evil continually. And Jesus said it will be a similar set of affairs prior to his second coming. I'm of the belief that we are drawing ever more near to the end of this age and we are seeing the same level of darkness in the earth. But I would add another statement to that that I just gave you. Money makes the world go round. I think it's true, though I'm not going to give you a load of statistics to support this statement. We could do that in a different study. But it has been true and continues to be true that alcohol makes the world go wrong. Money makes the world go round. Alcohol makes the world go wrong. I want to give you an example of how that very thing plays itself out in the biblical record. I'm going to point you to Belshazzar. Belshazzar was a king of Babylon. Some think he was the grandson of Nebuchadnezzar. There are other scholars who think the relationship was something different, that he was perhaps maybe a relative, but a rebellious relative that usurped the kingdom. We aren't going to digress into those details. You will see with me, as it relates to the King James Version, it represents Belshazzar as being Nebuchadnezzar's son. Now, he certainly wasn't his direct son. He was the son of Nabonidus, and therefore the grandson of Nebuchadnezzar. But here's the point. The point is, is that Belshazzar was the king of Babylon. And Babylon was the nation that was in world ascendancy, certainly in the Mediterranean world, in the Mesopotamian world, at that time, which is roughly 536 B.C. Belshazzar, as you will see with me, was not a sober man. He fell into the trap that when one experiences power, privilege, and position, that one can lose one's sense of self-awareness and begin to get intoxicated with that which God has gifted you with, either through his direct blessing or just through his providence. You recall with me that God made it clear to Nebuchadnezzar himself that God established him into this position. And Nebuchadnezzar needed to learn his lesson to keep his place, to keep his spirit in order. Now you're going to remember 
that the story of Belshazzar is the story from which we get the idea of handwriting on the wall. But I believe it's the case that the reason why Belshazzar needed the handwriting on the wall is because he could not read the handwriting that was on his own life. He could not discern his own heart. He could not see that his behavior itself was the handwriting on the wall, that this abuse of power, privilege, and position that God had entrusted or allowed to be in his life, this lack of sobriety, this lack of moderation, this lack of temperance will lead to disaster. I believe if Daniel entered into the room that we're about to describe, that Daniel would have been able to read that scene immediately. In fact, I don't think Daniel necessarily had to translate many, many tekel ufarsim. I'm not stating that he did not do so. Please don't misquote me. But I'm trying to state, and I'm saying it a bit tongue-in-cheek, but to make a point, it wasn't a difficult spiritual experience or endeavor to translate the right handwriting on the wall, all you had to do is just look in the room. Let me describe that room for you. In Daniel chapter 5, beginning in verse 3, we are told that Belshazzar, along of course with the ruling elite in Babylon, they brought the golden vessels that were taken out of the temple of the house of the Lord, which was at Jerusalem. Here is a man that thinks he's above God. Here is a man that thinks that he can take the things that are sanctified for God's holy use and he can use them as he pleases. He can use them to fulfill his own carnal interests. The other day, I was working at the saw on my job and I had occasion to say to a young man who I heard use the name of the Lord in vain, and he was about 15 feet away from me at the time, I looked up from my table saw and put my eyes on him and I said, you shouldn't say that, he hasn't done anything to you. He replied by looking into the back of my trailer and saying the same word or two words, which were the name of my Lord Jesus Christ, and expressing he had never seen a trailer so outfitted and so well supplied. And I was given to respond to him that it was this very Jesus Christ that had blessed me with that trailer and he shouldn't take his name in vain. My point for stating that is this young man said to me very quickly, I wasn't taking his name in vain. I didn't carry on an argument with him. Nothing that I said to him was rude or unkind. I was seeking to help him to understand what his actions represent. But I state that out of my own experience so as to help stir your own thoughts. What I am saying is that we live in God's world. Our bodies belong to God. Our friends belong to God. Our parents, our children, our relatives, our job opportunities. The food we eat belongs to God. The beds we sleep in belong to God. All the products that are out there, however they're used, fundamentally they belong to God. And it is a lack of sobriety. It's a lack of serious living. To take the things that belong to God and use them for your own pleasure, for your own ends, and not seek the mind of the Lord as to 
what the design for this particular vessel or this particular instrument or this particular provision is. If one had looked in the back of my trailer and saw all the tools and so on and the well-ordered way in which it was outfitted and said, praise be to God for his blessing in your life, then that would be a sensible remark that one day will fill the earth for the knowledge of the Lord will fill the earth as the waters cover the sea at some point. But what I'm stating to you is that the call to the Christian to live a sober life is the call to be unlike Belshazzar and unlike those who literally take the sacred name of the Lord and use it in vain at will. In addition to that, to recognize all the bounty of the Lord, all his daily benefits are to be respected and sanctified for his use. They are to be submitted to the name of the Lord Jesus Christ so that whatsoever you do in word or deed, you do all to the glory of God. I'm saying to do otherwise is a measure of intoxication. There is such a need in the human heart to sober up about what life is all about. Well, they took these golden vessels, as we read in Daniel chapter 5, and the king and the princes and his wives and his concubines, we're told, drank in them. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver and brass and iron and wood and of stone. Now, as I was saying a moment ago, that is the handwriting on the wall. Do you understand me? When you look into somebody's life and you see them abusing alcohol or abusing their liberties, not exercising moderation and self-constraint, not submitting their wills and their choices to God, especially when you see this in excess, that is the handwriting on the wall. Sooner or later, God is going to intervene. And if you're one of his own, he will intervene while you're still able to get these things worked out before him. You see, in the same hour, we're told in verse 5 that a finger came forth and wrote some words on the wall. We're not going to get into all of that, but I will point out to you that this Belshazzar, who was intoxicated with his own power, his own privilege, his own position, you can be in the ministry and have this issue, you can be a member in the church that's granted liberty and have this issue. God calls men to be sober in their conduct. Belshazzar was not. He lifted himself above God. He failed to understand that basic principle that's given to us in a number of places in God's word. Take Habakkuk 2 and verse 20 for an example. It says, The Lord is in his holy temple, let all the earth keep silence before him. Belshazzar would have done well, since he was the ruler of Babylon, to have gathered his princes and his wives and even his concubines together and to honor the God of the Jews, who delivered them in such a marvelous way out of bondage in Egypt and brought them with a mighty hand into the promised land and showed forth his glory. He should have read the account and opened up his heart to learn who this Yahweh is. That is not an impossible task any more than it is for anyone living today to understand the Lord Jesus Christ 
and his kingship and his power. But we have many that give no attention to those things. And someday the handwriting on the wall is going to come in the form of God's judgments displaying his wrath from heaven all around the setting within which man lives. It's going to be in the skies. It's going to be in the mountains. It's going to be in the trees. It's going to be in the forest. It's going to be in the sea. It's going to be their homes. It's going to be all around them. The handwriting on the wall that you've been weighed in the balance and you've been found to be drunken. You've been found to be wanting. And like with Belshazzar, the joints of their loins will be loosed and their knees will smite against one another because they failed to do what I'm advocating, which is not to advocate we don't rejoice in the Lord. It is not to advocate a form of stoicism where we feel as though that it isn't right before God to have human emotion and to be caring, loving people amongst one another. But it is to say that we are to walk quietly and carefully before God. That is sober living. To realize, especially when you're in church, but if you want to practice God's presence, you should practice this all the time. God is in his holy temple. And he is. He is in the temple in heaven. And, and not too long... He's going to leave that location and he's going to come to earth and claim his rights. And the earth is going to have to give an account for how little respect and honor they give to Almighty God. But they who are learning what Titus is admonishing the elder men in the church to be, they who are learning to live soberly, and godly in this present age will be able to look for his glorious appearing and not be ashamed at his coming. I want to read to you what Daniel says to Belshazzar and you will hear in Daniel's own analysis that once again, as I stated, the handwriting was in Belshazzar's behavior. The handwriting that's on the wall is your drunkenness is your addiction. It is the intemperateness. It is the lack of control. That is the handwriting. Daniel, as he enters the room, addresses Belshazzar, and he says, O thou king, the Most High God, this is starting in verse 18 of chapter 5, the Most High God gave, the Most High God gave, Nebuchadnezzar, thy father, a kingdom and majesty and glory and honor. Any privilege you have, any blessing you presently experience, and any blessing you could experience in the future comes from above, from the Father of lights. He alone gives what is right and good. Any adding house to house and land to land and taking that which is not yours is a form of intoxication a form of drunkenness, a lack of sobriety. I don't have the time to stress these points at length, but I do want to just remark that is it not interesting that Daniel, who is a Jew, is addressing a Gentile by the name of Belshazzar and expecting him to understand that Yahweh gave to his grandfather the kingdom. The revelation is in the earth, in other words. It is available for any heart 
that wants to understand what is true and what is right. He goes on to say, And for the majesty that he gave him, all people, nations, and languages trembled and feared before him, whom he would he slew, and whom he would he kept alive, and whom he would he set up, and whom he would he put down. Verse 20, But when his heart was lifted up, what is happening here? This is biography. This is history. You can be sobered by reading biography, by paying attention to history. And God intends that you do have that experience, that you make use of those means. Because Daniel is arguing here, you should have known where this is going to lead. Because you're not the first one to go down this path. And while we have such a value these days of living your own truth and this concept that you can just create your own reality through the sheer desire and force of your will. The Bible teaches otherwise. The Bible says there's nothing new under the sun. The Bible says you will reap what you sow as everyone has always experienced. And among the ways in which our lives can be sobered is by reading history, reading biography, learning from those who have followed Jesus successfully and left us a good record, as well as learning from the mistakes of others. He says, but when your father's heart was lifted up and his mind hardened in pride, he was deposed from his kingly throne and they took his glory from him. In other words, what do you think is going to happen to you? If you choose to abuse alcohol, substances, if you choose an intemperate life, if you choose a lack of moderation and control in this situation, what do you think is going to happen to you? That's what Daniel is saying. And he was driven from the sons of men, and his heart was made like the beasts, and his dwelling was with the wild mules. They fed him with grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven till he knew that the Most High God ruled in the kingdom of men, and that he appointed over it whomsoever he will. In other words, until Nebuchadnezzar recognized that the Lord is in his holy temple, and Nebuchadnezzar should be still. He should quiet down his soul, quiet down his voice before God. He looked out in his kingdom and said, All my power has done this. I have a, a great ministry in this earth. I'm a great man. I'm a great woman. I'm an important being. And God took him into rehab, sobered him up, intervened to rescue him from his addiction, and Nebuchadnezzar got quiet before God. Verse 22, Daniel says, And thou, his son, O Belshazzar, hast not humbled thine heart, here's a key phrase, though thou knewest all this. Don't overlook that. If you want one of the most helpful, practical keys to sober living, pay attention to what you know. Pay attention to biography and history. And that can be just what happened yesterday, you know. That can be, you know, what happened in your own lifespan to yourself or to others. Or it can be biography that you read. It can be biography in the Bible. I was listening through the book, to the Galatians this morning as I was interceding. Listened through it, I guess, three times. And there's good biography about the Apostle Paul. 
that will help sober you up. When he talked about the world being crucified to me and I onto the world, those sorts of things, that's, that's a sober man. And, and you can read it and God will tell you, you know that. Do you understand what I'm saying? If you know it, then you're supposed to obey it. I know nowadays we can hear things and not obey them and we're supposed to be able to do this as much as we want and everybody's supposed to just come back and affirm us and accept us and show how much love we have for you. And I'm not so much arguing against affirming love, you know what I mean? I'm not arguing for throwing people out. I'm talking about your own life and what will benefit you. And I'm saying that one way to take account of your own life is to take account to what you already know and don't think you're going to be an exception. That's a lack of sobriety. That's a form of intoxication to think that somehow, just because in your own little being you know yourself, the, the sheer fact that you can reflect within and be aware of your own being does not mean that you're somehow so unique that life will treat you differently than has treated the billions of people that have gone before you and that are around you. Sober living realizes that, like anybody else, I have to walk the way of the Lord. I'm just, at that point, I'm just another one of God's children, another one of God's creatures. Do you understand what I'm saying? There's nothing special about me, not in that sense. That started to get drunk. Okay, so you can stand and be aware of yourself and have various views about your capabilities, and you can begin to get intoxicated with your own being. And God has to bring you back down and quit all your talk that's beyond what his story is for your life. You see, Belshazzar was trying to create his own story about how powerful Babylon would be in the future. And they were celebrating this. But once you get intoxicated with your view of yourself and where your life is going to go and all the rest of it, it just may be time for God to intervene and sober you up. And that's what he did. You see, when providence determines that punishment is due to a sinful nation and that power is to be placed into the hands of others, we often find drunken men behind the wheel of the offending nation. It's amazing how true that is to the historical record. You know, providence delegates or exploits means... In other words, what I'm saying is, take Pharaoh, for example. Pharaoh had a hard heart. He personally had a hard, unregenerate heart. And when we read that God hardened Pharaoh's heart, we could say that what God did is he took the means, he took the actions of men that were already there, and he providentially used them or exploited them, if you will, to bring to pass his purposes. Do you understand what I'm saying? And so Ahab, the king, was susceptible to listening to lies. He was happy to believe untruths. He was not an honest man and an upright man himself. And so when Providence wanted to bring a certain thing to pass as it relates to Ahab's life, he exploited the means of a lying spirit, knowing that Ahab in himself was given in his character to believe lies, and God simply exploited them. And I'm saying to you, just as we see in the life of Belshazzar, in the record of history, when providence wants to punish a nation, whether it's some ancient nation or some modern nation, and 
judge that sinful power and bring power to some other people, you will often find drunken men at the wheel. Drunken men in positions of authority. I mean literally feasting and drinking and partying and going about this way with their excess but also, of course, drunk in their view of themselves, drunk with their power. And if you're following what I'm saying, I know that God has all the power to do whatever He pleases, but I'm saying providence often exploits means. And when someone is drunk behind the wheel, it's not that hard for God to bring that power to an end. All one needs is a few little obstacles to come Jarting, darting out into their field of vision and they're drunk behind the wheel and they're going to crash that nation and then power will go to where God determines it to go. I mean, that's exactly what happened with Belshazzar. Do you not understand that? That that very night, the Persians invaded, the Medo-Persians invaded the city where Belshazzar was and defeated the Babylonian kingdom. But I want to bring you to another biblical account that occurs 60 years after Belshazzar. We've already heard from Daniel that Belshazzar knew the story of Nebuchadnezzar. He should have known what would happen when he put together this drunken festivity and added to it the intemperateness of his male pride and ego to bring out the vessels that were sanctified to be used in the temple of Yahweh in Jerusalem. Daniel said, you should have known this, or stated differently, you knew these things, Belshazzar. And are you listening to me? Belshazzar was a man who brought a kingdom to an end. You can be the boss of a company, and you lack the kind of sobriety we're talking about, and you bring that company to ruin. You can be the head of a home, and you should know these things, but you don't pay attention. You're not a sober man. You're not a serious man, and you bring your family to ruin. You could be a pastor. Think of all the stories that are out there. Think of all the men who haven't listened to the stories. I won't repeat their names in this study. But as I said when I first introduced our topic for today, the Bible tells us we need to be sober and vigilant because your adversary is seeking to destroy your life. And I'm not advocating, as I said before, paranoia or Pharisaism or a lack of humanity or Stoicism. But there's something beautiful about Jesus, beautiful about Paul, beautiful about the Christian faith, where you can live in the callings and in the freedom of the Spirit that God brings into your life, but you live those things soberly, with a sober mind, with a quietness in your heart, with a respect and honor toward God that allows one to make good decisions as you continue to live life. Now those things entail, of course, when one is sober and awake, one is aware of dangers and so on. And so one is constantly having to adjust. For example, this may be more pertinent at some other location in this study. 
But when we think about those who have an addiction to pornography, that is a lack of sober living. Because what one is doing in that case is one is going beyond what God is offering to your life. And you're very noisy in God's world. And this is so prevalent, as you know, there's all sorts of manifestations of this, all sorts of sins in this direction. And this is very, very noisy activity in God's presence. And what I'm saying at this point is the handwriting is already on the wall because that kind of behavior is manifesting that that one is not serious about life. It's just that simple. You take this, the, the issue of pornography, which as I've stated whenever I bring this topic up, that pastorally, even I could say as a church, we're here to help anyone if they need that help. We're not here to condemn you, we're here to help you. But part of our help is to tell you that it's an indication that you are not taking life seriously. To indulge in those sorts of sins so wantonly and so, you know, so in such a pattern of life is to manifest that you really don't understand the basic requirements of what God demands out of the human being. But you should know, because the Bible is filled with warnings about those sorts of things. You, do you understand what I'm trying to say here? I'm trying to say, in spite of all that, how many men in various sectors of life still go down that road in one way or another? And then we're surprised when all of a sudden the handwriting is in the newspaper. The handwriting is in the church bulletin. The handwriting is maybe in an obituary. Do you know what I'm saying? The, the handwriting was already there. That's what I'm trying to say. The, the handwriting that showed up on the wall was only because Belshazzar wasn't paying attention to his own behavior. He could have looked at himself and says, I know what's coming. I remember what happened to Nebuchadnezzar. And I'm trying to say that when intemperance is chosen as a pattern of life, you are like someone who is drunk behind the wheel. You are going to have a serious accident in which you're going to hurt yourself and other people sooner or later. Well, let me take you 60 years later to the book of Esther. Our purpose here is not to teach the book of Esther, but to just draw a few principles out of this so that we can finish up our point about personal prohibition. Because in all these cases, whether it's Belshazzar, the people that were drinking with him, and as we'll see here in the book of Esther, we're with Ahasuerus or Xerxes, which he's also called the king of Persia, um, or even Haman within the book of Esther. And then, of course, all the nobles and the leaders around Ahasuerus. These individuals chose on their own to drink. They did not practice personal prohibition. And so as we think about the book of Esther... I want to share with you what I think is the most far-reaching providential act that the book of Esther records. Those who have studied this book understand that one of its grand themes is God's providence. It's pointed out that his name is not even used in the book of Esther, but his name is everywhere in his providential actions. And I believe I can support this position 
with a particular text that I will get to very soon. But I want to state to you what I think is the most far-reaching providential act in this book. It is not Vashti's demise or Esther's rise, in my opinion. Neither is it Mordecai's adventitious court eavesdropping. Do you remember that uh, Mordecai was providentially in a position to hear two chamberlains of Xerxes who were plotting his death, and he reported it to Esther, and Esther reported it to the proper authorities, and then Mordecai's name was chronicled as the one who had spared the king from an assassination. That's a remarkable providential act, but I don't think it's the most far-reaching. Nor is it Ahasuerus's insomnia. Remember, the king couldn't sleep, and he opened the chronicles, and you know how all these things fit together. Nor do I think it is Haman dying on his own gallows, or his own ten sons being executed as well, and thereby terminating the Agite line that Saul was charged with removing from the earth and failed to do. An interesting side note to the book of Esther. All these providential acts of Vashti and Esther and Mordecai and Haman, etc., they all fit into a narrative, which is the book of Esther. But in my view, the most far-reaching providential act, and that which the near comedy, the near comic element of the book of Esther is pointing to, is the death of over 75,000 Persians. Now first, I suppose I should point out to you that that actually takes place in the book of Esther, in case you forgot. You know, there was a, a time when an edict went out from Xerxes, King Ahasuerus, and that document stated that the residents of the Persian Empire on this particular date could fight against and take the lives of the Jews wherever they found them and then take their possessions to themselves. But that's not the way the story ended. The story ended in, in exactly the opposite set of affairs occurring. The complete reverse of what the Persian king's own edict that came from Haman and behind Haman, the princes and all their power and all their pride and all their sense of prominence that they had engineered that the Jews would experience another pogrom and that they would be killed and plundered. All of that in the book of Esther is entirely reversed. And the result, as we read in Esther 9, thus the Jews smote all their enemies. First, we read about how they smote in Shushan, the palace, 500 men. We read how the ten sons of Haman were killed. Later, in this same chapter, we read that there were another 300 men that were killed in Shushan. And then we read about 75,000 of the Jews' enemies whom they slew but we're told they did not lay their hands on their substance. Interesting. The Jews did not take the possessions of those that they slew, which is showing us what I'm trying to make clear to you is that this is a comparison between a drunken nation and a representation of God's sober people 
and the person of Mordecai and Esther. The sober-minded win. The drunken lose everything. Because the way this story starts, the way the book of Esther starts, is this picture of extravagance in every direction. It's the picture of a six-month drinking party spread out over 127 provinces from India to Egypt. There's a 180-day or six-month royal feast, probably with rotating attendees, you know, people coming from various parts of the kingdom, from various provinces coming and participating in this celebration of Persian power. And then that's followed by a seven-day public feast in the king's garden where not only the ruling class can participate, but just any common person can come and they can enjoy the feast themselves in the king's garden. And we read in chapter 1 and verse 6 how the garden was so extravagantly decorated with tapestry and colors, etc. And then we're told in verse 7 that there was royal wine in abundance. And in that context, in Esther chapter 1 and verse 10, we're told that when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he did something. With respect to the Persian Empire, when's the last time we know of that occurring? Daniel chapter 5, 60 years ago. When in this case, well, I think I might have said Persian. Pardon me if I did say Persian. I just mean in the kingdoms of the earth, generally speaking. In Belshazzar's case, it's the king of Babylon that preceded the kings of Persia. Do you follow what I'm saying? And the last time we read about a king getting intoxicated with himself, coupling that with wine, which is just the outer manifestation of what is going on on the inside. As Paul says, be not drunk with wine wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit, which, is, which means fill your life with the, with the joy and the direction and blessing and freedom of the Spirit of God, which will never leave you into sin. Jesus was called a wine-bibber and a glutton, a friend of sinners and harlots. He was none of those in a sinful capacity. He was a loving, compassionate God-man who, with all of his experiences and all of his care, nonetheless exercised godly sobriety. He is our model. But I'm saying that, as was said to Belshazzar, it could be said to Ahasuerus, you know what's coming. You should know what is coming. And that's essentially the point that I want to make using the book of Esther. We could get into all the details, but the book of Esther opens with this royal feast taking place with all these Persians and all the citizens of Persia that think like them, gathered, feasting, drinking, feeling as though they can call on the women to do whatever they desire, which is pornography, by the way. That's what pornography does. You call on women to do whatever you desire. And some comply. Wise women don't, like Vashti. But what I'm trying to say is they're drunk. They're, they're not in control of their spirit. They're living in excess. And they're leaders of a nation, in this case. How does the book end? The book ends with 75,000 Persians dead. I don't know if you understand that that helps the Jewish cause. That helps them. God just brought the Jewish cause forward 
a little bit more to the peace of Jerusalem. You understand what I mean? Because according to Daniel's colossal image, you know, the head of gold has to come and go and all that statue has to be dealt with before the kingdom is restored and Christ is reigning and ruling from Jerusalem. You understand what I mean? Listen to the last verse of the book of Esther. For Mordecai the Jew was next on to King Ahasuerus, or Ahasuerus, and great among the Jews, and accepted of the multitude of his brethren, seeking the wealth of his people, and speaking peace to all his seed. The book ends by showing us that there was a sober man in this story. His name is Mordecai. He's one of God's children. Esther also was a sober young lady who obeyed her uncle and sought to live uprightly and seriously. And the book of Esther ends with the two sober people who happen to be Jews in the ascendancy. <laughs> and the Persians, who looked like they had all this power, do you understand? Brothers and sisters, I'm telling you that the meek are going to inherit the earth. Not the drunken, not the excessive, not the intemperate, not the revelers, not those that say, well, I'm living the life. But it's their life, the meek and quiet, who let God speak to their soul. They will prevail in the end. You'll read a text just like this. And Lois, the Christian, is third in line in the region of Italy, or wherever you fancy that in the millennium God will position you as you serve Him in humbleness of heart. The meek will inherit the earth, brothers and sisters. Well, I just want to point out before we transition to the call to public prohibition, that this set of affairs that we've just described as happening in the Babylonian kingdom with Belshazzar, in the Persian kingdom with Ahasuerus. You can picture, I hope, what that all looks like, you know, with these men. You know, they're men, they've got beards, and some of them are strong, and they're statuesque, and all the rest of it. You understand what I'm talking about, you know? But these men do not practice self-control. And it doesn't matter how impressive you may look on the outside and how impressive you are to other people at some level. If you don't control yourself, you're going to destroy yourself and everybody around you. You're like this macho man in a car taking other people with you and saying, you know, you get the roof back and maybe you've got your sunglasses on and you're playing your music and you're driving down the highway and you're sipping your beer and you're like, I'm living the life. You know what I mean? And everybody thinks you're cool. You know what I'm saying? Until you crash the vehicle and injure yourself and others that you supposedly love and care for. Do you understand what I'm saying? Over against that picture, we have the Church of Jesus Christ, the Kingdom of God, and that should look nothing like what we've just described. The Bible says that a pastor must be blameless as the steward of God, not self-willed, not soon angry, unable to control one's emotions, not given to wine, literal wine. But one of the reasons why a man doesn't go to literal wine is because that man is sober in his spirit, in his mind. He is temperate in his disposition. He fears God. He's in control of his thoughts. Do you understand? He is a thoughtful man. To be a thoughtful person is not just to hold the door for someone, 
but to know why you're holding the door. Not given to wine, no striker, not given to filthy lucre. But we have to acknowledge that while the church of Jesus Christ and the kingdom of God should obviously be characterized by what I've just described here, in contradistinction to Belshazzar and Ahasuerus, its leaders should not look like them, in other words, and all their buddies. The church of Jesus Christ should not look like a, you know, like a fraternity of the macho, where the men are jockeying for position and arguing for each other and always trying to manifest their own gifts and powers and whatever. Do you understand what I'm saying? Just drunk with anything that they think that God has blessed them with, unable to control their spirit. It's not what the church of Jesus Christ should look like. But we do have to wrestle with this even in the church of God, because Paul did. He said, all seek their own, not the things that are Jesus Christ. Now, how all, all is, <laughs> you know, is a sort of sobering question in, its own, in, in itself. All seek their own. I'm not digressing into that. But I do want to point out that Paul said about Timothy, but I have found a young man who is equal-souled, isophysukos. You've heard of an isotrope? Comes from the same prefix. He says, I have a man in Timothy who I love dearly because we share a soul. Do you understand that Paul is human? Knows how to love, knows how to care, knows how to be compassionate, has emotions? Because he absolutely had them toward Timothy all you need to do is just pay attention to the Bible and common sense, but you can certainly read First and Second Timothy and see it written all over the letter. And what he's saying here, he's saying, as a son, he has served with me in the gospel. That's a beautiful, beautiful thing. And that's the sort of beauty and sobriety that we should see in the church of Jesus Christ. We should see brothers, brothers and sisters, striving together for the faith of the gospel. Men loving one another because they both love Jesus. They love Jesus' kingdom. They love the work of God. They totally love one another like David loved Jonathan, but they're not intoxicated with themselves or what they're doing or, or, or how many people got saved under their ministry, what size their tent is or whatever. You know what I'm trying to say? They don't get drunk in the service of God. But that doesn't mean you have to be stoic, is what I'm trying to say. And everybody just stares straight forward, and that's all you ever do. You never say praise the Lord or, or get rejoicing. But it's difficult to have any of those sorts of things if the church is made up of diatrophy types who love to have the preeminence. Here again, we're just pointing out that while the church of Jesus Christ should not look like the Gentile nations, it shouldn't look like a bunch of men who aren't regenerate. Over the years, I've sometimes heard statements about, well, this is just the way men are. Men are prideful. Men have a hard time submitting. It's just our personality. I'm not picking on any particular thing, but since it's been said, I need to comment to it. And it isn't a trivial remark for me to say... It's not like I was just born again yesterday and haven't lived this life and interacted with many men in the course of my life. I'm here to tell you on the authority of the Word, and I could back it up with godly voices from the past and present, that all things are supposed to be new. That if you have struggles in that direction, you need to crucify them, and you need to bring them to the 
submission of Jesus Christ. In other words, if the service of God is not bigger than your interest in your own name, then you need to find a different door into God's kingdom because you went in the wrong way. You leaped over a wall. You did not go in the right way. I understand you can go in the right way and then discover things latent in your heart that aren't quite right. I get that. But they're supposed to disappoint you. And you're not just disappointed like, oh, bummer, I might get caught. You know what I mean? They're supposed to disappoint you and say, what a wretch am I, and change it. You're not supposed to be like Dathan and Abiram, supposedly saved, right? But all they could think of is, Moses, you take too much on yourself. Moses, you do too much. Moses, anybody but me is doing too much. And you know what Moses said to them? Are you aware of what Moses said to them? Probably drove them up a wall. Well, actually, no, it drove them down a cavern. He said, no, you take too much upon yourself. The Bible speaks of those that sport themselves with their own deceivings. In 2 Peter chapter 2, he says they can be in your midst. They sport themselves. It's a sport for them. Do you understand? It's just this drunken behavior. It's like going to the football game. You ever watch men go to a football game or a concert or... Or the nightclub. I mean, I've never been in those things. I was saved when I was 17. As far as I can remember, I never was in a nightclub. But you see them sporting themselves. And they're so cool. You know, they're smoking their cigars. They're drinking their beers. They've got their women in whatever they're doing. They've got their cars. They've got their music. They've got their muscles. Do you understand? You see this. And it's very appealing to people. There's a popular person presently. Of course, there always will be and always have been. You know, who's supposedly a, a role model for young men. And... I mean, you know, if you say anything halfway sensible, you're, you stand out today for young men. Uh, but this man is not a role model. I'm not going to digress into it. i tell you later who I'm thinking of if you want to know. But no, I mean, he's about his muscles and his women and his bravado. And yeah, so it's better than being told that you're a male and a useless creature on the face of the earth and you should just submit to all the children and the women. I'm, you know, if, we, if that's the only comparison we have, then fine. But compared to Jesus Christ, that's not what manliness is all about. Manliness is not the ability to go to a football game and really get into it. Do you understand what I'm saying? Because what is that person modeling? That person is modeling that he does not understand what life is all about. And then you get a pastor like me that's trying to teach these things to people's hearts, and it's like sludging through mud. It's like, you know, shovelful after shovelful. Like, can we talk about what life is all about? Let's think about what life really means. And it's so far from what most men model that people don't even have the ability to envision it. The Bible says that we should gird up the loins of our mind and be sober. 1 Peter 1, verse 13. I want to then finish by bringing to you what the scriptures say about public prohibition. We are to practice not just personal prohibition, but in our public actions we are to practice prohibition as well. Do you remember the language of Isaiah 5? Woe unto them... The individual, the person who rises up early in the morning that they may follow strong drink. Listen now to the Bible as it relates to public prohibition. Habakkuk 
2, in verse 15, Woe unto him that gives his neighbor drink, that puts your bottle to him and make him drunken also, that you may look on their nakedness. It's amazing to me how prescient and insightful the scriptures are, because when we fail to aid those who have tendencies to insobriety, tendencies to intemperateness, tendencies toward excess, there is a form of shaming something in that direction. There's a form of exposing, there's a form of ruining that individual that we're participating in. You know, the Bible uses the language here as you give them this drink so you can look on their nakedness and Obviously, sometimes that's exactly what people are doing in trying to get people drunk, but there's a principle here. The principle here is you're helping this person make a fool of him or herself. You're helping this person expose themselves in a shameful manner, and you are going to be charged as an accomplice in this sin. What we're looking at here, obviously, as it relates to literal alcohol, you know, we had some questions about what one might purchase or not purchase, or how one might aid an unbeliever in terms of, say, for example, if someone, an elderly person that you're caring for, has been prescribed various medications that, under their circumstances, sustain their life, is it unbiblical for you to assist them in obtaining those products? And I don't have a categorical answer of no, because it would depend on what these products are, and, um, and so on. But as it relates to alcohol, we have a very clear statement here, is you are not to buy your neighbor alcohol. You are not to facilitate someone's intemperate life. And this applies, as has this entire study, when the elder men are called to be sober-minded, you are not to facilitate, you are not to flatter, you are not to egg on, you are not to pour the other drink in your unbalanced expressions of admiration into the life of someone who is losing touch with himself or herself. Let's stay with an older man in this case. Let's say your pastor, I'm your pastor. If you watched me losing touch with my sense of service to God and watched me begin to drift into claims about my power and my presence and the importance of my ministry and bossing people around the church and those sorts of things, and rather than help to sober me up, you pour me another drink. You write the article yourself. You stand up and say, what a wonderful man Brother William is because I did say something in that particular instance that was actually commendable. You see what I'm saying? But my pattern is on, in the other direction and you just keep feeding me this intoxication into my spirit. The Bible says, woe to you that is helping the spirit of a man who cannot control himself to not sober up. You can imagine, in the household of Nabal, for all the submission that Abigail needed to exercise, she was not making statements of the wonder and the insight and the wisdom 
of Nabal any slight chance she had the opportunity to make that remark. You say, why? Because you're just pouring him another drink. And eventually, if she were doing that, which I'm sure she wasn't, eventually that intoxication is going to be the handwriting on the wall or he's going to meet the wall, so to speak, like Nabal did with David. And that entire house is going to be in jeopardy. And it's a little late to sober things up now. You know why godly men cease from the church? It's partly due to this phenomenon where people think that love or maybe even submission or I don't know what, kindness, you know, maybe kindness too. Do you practice this, brothers and sisters? If a man comes and stands in the pulpit, for example, and I'm not saying that this has happened, but I'm just giving you a few thought experiments. If someone comes and stands in this pulpit or other men come into this meeting and you discern or you ought to discern that there are needs in their life, not all that they do is balanced and godly, but rather than conduct yourself in a helpful manner toward that individual to assist them in their own personal growth, you add flattery, you add comments that they seem even to demand that you give them because of their behavior. There are people that act in certain ways that almost force you to try to acknowledge them. And rather than you participate in helping someone to live a more sober life, you just toss out your congratulations, you toss out your flattery, and what you're doing, you're not thinking. You are pouring that person another drink. Say someone comes here and supposedly manifests a gift, you know, supposedly. And it's, thus saith the Lord, and it's whatever, and it isn't the Lord. But you have to say, oh, praise the Lord, praise the Lord. You go up later and say, that was such a blessing. That, that really ministered to my heart. That really helped my soul. If you can't discern in someone's life these tendencies, then you should be more cautious with your commendations because you might be pouring intoxication and not know it. How about the person that thinks they're a prophet or the person that thinks they're some great wise man or something like that? And you pour that drink, oh, that was such a wonderful prophecy. Oh, the wisdom that you have is just amazing. What do you actually do? The Bible says godly men cease. Help, Lord, for the godly man isn't around anymore. The faithful are failing from the children of men. You know, want to know why? Because they speak vanity, everyone with his neighbor. With flattering lips and with a double heart do they speak. The Lord shall cut off all these flattering lips. How many ministries have been ruined through flattering lips? How many nables have not had their heart dealt with so that it doesn't have to harden and die because someone foolishly keeps pouring them another drink? Paul says when he preaches, he says, we don't use flattering words. The Bible tells us that foolishness is bound in the heart of a child. Do you know what happens when that foolishness is not dealt with in your childhood years? It remains in you as an adult. And you know the only way it gets dealt with is through the rod of correction. It takes, it takes some experience that sobers you like a rod against your person, that sharpness of objection to your foolish behavior. 
that smarting of your experience that tries to drive some sense into your being, that is what drives the foolishness out of all of us, brothers and sisters. But if it is the case that foolishness is bound in the heart of a child and remains in not a few adults, then what should we say to those who pour foolishness into the child's life or into the adult's life? Have you ever seen that sort of thing? I have, and I wonder what you have thought about it. I'll venture to give you an example so that you can examine your own life. It wasn't that long ago when there was an older person that was a part of this assembly, and one of his patterns of behavior was to interact with the younger, and however many younger fit that class, I'm not here to think about presently, because it would have been done to any young child. It was a pattern of life, and one of the things that he would do with the young in our assembly is he would interact in the most foolish manner. He would make, I won't do it, but he would make these loud noises. I mean, I almost want to do it so you know what I'm talking about. If you've forgotten, all right, you've forgotten. You shouldn't have forgotten because it should have bothered you. That's why I'm teaching. But it would be, I'll have to do a little bit. It'd be like, bark, 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 whatever, that kind of thing, to get the child to laugh. Did you recognize how problematic that is? Or did you say, oh, praise the Lord, that's so nice, he's such a nice guy. Here's my child, just teach this child foolishness. Just pour more foolishness into this child. That's fine, that's fine. No, it's not fine. Woe unto you, intoxicating children with more foolishness. As I've said before, I'm not advocating you have to be stoic. I'm not advocating you can't have fun, you can't laugh, you can't enjoy one another's company. But there is a distinction between that sort of thing and just foolishness, particularly from an older person. And you shouldn't need me to say that I'm not condemning anyone. I'm seeking to instruct the church. You should be expecting out of your older men, happy people, personable people, people with a sense of humor, all those range of things. But they should be able to make a distinction between loving, caring, healthy interaction and pouring foolishness into your children or pouring foolishness into one another. You know, you can get joking as guys or even joking to a gal, whatever. You can get, you can get foolish. Do you understand what I'm saying? And if someone has a tendency in that direction... They like that kind of banter and interaction. The Bible says you have a responsibility not to pour them that drink. And there are people that find it difficult not to do it because that personality type almost asks for interaction along those lines. They want you to say how funny you are and, and, and support it. And you know what I mean? It's almost like you have to participate. And I'm saying you're not sober yourself when you do that. Would you buy alcohol for someone who has an addiction? I trow not, and I also hope not. So spiritually, brothers and sisters, you should be thoughtful. Not stoic about expressing your gratitude, but you should be thoughtful. What, what would be the determining factor? You're asking, well, how would I know when it's right? How about when it'll edify, when it obviously helps someone? I had a brother this last week because of a bizarre situation that occurred to me 
which maybe I'll share with you later, in which someone out of the blue just dressed me down and accused me of things that were just shocking. It happened on a job. Without any request from me, I didn't know it would happen. He called me. I was already had left the job. This brother and I think his wife drove from wherever they live in another town down to my job to be a character witness for me and say, that is not William. I know William. He's not that man. That's edifying. And you're not up here watching me intoxicated. I didn't even have it in my mind to mention except in this particular instance. What I'm trying to say is, if otherwise, there are tendencies in that direction, you don't help anybody any more than Abigail would have helped David to say, David, you know, my husband really cares about this home and he's a thoughtful man and I trust you'll understand his position. Um, because as the, as the head of the home, I just need to support him. I had this experience once, actually. It occurs to me, and it was the most befuddling thing that I encountered. I was ministering in another country, and in the course of several weeks of ministry, I was close to another brother, and I gradually learned this brother's a very difficult man in these different ways, and it was getting exceedingly hard for me to deal with. And we were all riding our bike to a meeting and this brother started going in on some other stuff and it was so contrary to my spirit. I had been ministering to the saints and I think effectively and meaningfully and I wanted to minister to the saints and this brother was just not in the spirit. And while he and his wife and I were riding our bikes to the next meeting, I just stopped and I was going to go back. And instead of his wife recognizing where I was coming from, and either saying nothing or being tactful in how she would deal with it, she started to kind of dig into me because he forced her to, basically. That would be like the navel type. You have to do this. And when she does, all she did is pour him another drink. That's all she did. That man's dead now. He ended up becoming a part of a church that I knew the pastor very well in a very personable way. And this pastor told me on more than one occasion, I am about to put this man out of the church. This man lived his entire life, never, as far as I know, got control of his dispositions. But he had someone like me, who's not perfect, but I could help you out somewhere. He had somebody like another brother that I highly respect, that has since gone on to be with the Lord, that was there to help him. But somebody evidently kept slipping him a drink, so that when someone like me was talking to him, Instead of sobering him up, he would just take that drink and feel the buzz again. And actually, I am pretty amazing. It's no different than if someone gets intoxicated on alcohol and you buy them their own beer. And they sometimes will tell you, you need to get me this beer. I need the beer. If you love me, you'll get me the beer. And you need to be able to say no, like Paul did to the Corinthians. He said, you still have childishness in your souls. He says, I'm going to bring a rod. I'm going to bring a rod to deal with it. The Bible tells us not to think of men above that which is written. Amen. No man should demand that you think of him above that which is written. No woman should demand that you think of me above that which is written. This is not saying that we don't have appreciation. We are to esteem those who serve us 
in the ministry, very highly in love for their work's sake. But not just because they show up. Amen? Not just because they show up. I, I'm thinking of a brother right now who I know, I suppose you would say, meaning I knew, and I don't think I actually ministered in his church, but I ministered in another setting where he was affiliated, and he and his wife, and I thought everything was wonderful, and I once went to his church to look at the space, and you know, and, and this man, I'm saying, is still pastoring. But this man is now separated from his wife, and I don't have Facebook for myself personally, but I can see some posts. And, and his, you know, I'm just going to say, I mean, the stuff he posts, it's just so childish. So childish. And if those who come to that meeting esteem him worthy of double honor just because he shows up, you're not helping the church, you're not helping anything, anybody. If a man is reckless, he's reckless. God needs his people, his house, to be sober in a spiritual way. Do you understand what I'm saying? I'm not saying there's not a place for appreciation, a place for honor, whether it's toward the pastor or toward one another. We ought to obey those that have the rule over us. You can push anything too far in one direction, but whatever we do should be temperate and should be measured. We can rejoice in heaven, and if you want to call it go crazy then, it'll be a heavenly crazy, it'll be fine. Remember when David danced with all his might before the Lord and, and Michael thought it was crazy? Well, you can have, we can have our crazy joy, our crazy rejoicing, say whatever we want then, you know, for the pastor or whatever. We need to be measured and thoughtful in the meantime. Now, if everybody just starts staring at one another like this and, you know, won't say anything, I'm going to have to come back and teach another message. But I think you understand what I'm talking about. Let me give you the remedy. In closing, the remedy to intoxication. Number one, and I'm thinking primarily spiritually, spiritual intoxication. Number one, stop blessing yourself. Stop blessing yourself. In other words, sober up. The Bible tells us in Psalm 49, verse 16 through 18, Psalm 49, Be not thou afraid when one is made rich. Now, who gets afraid when somebody is made rich? So you have to translate this a little bit from the King James language or this concept. It means don't feel nervous and anxious and all worried that you're now a loser and you're missing out on life. Don't get enticed when someone advances and looks like they're living the life and everything's going so well and they're living the dream and all that. Be not afraid when one is made rich, when the glory of his house is increased... For when he dies, he shall carry nothing away. His glory shall not descend after him, though while he lived, he blessed his soul, and men will praise you when you do well to yourself. How do you sober up? Stop blessing yourself. Stop trying to do well for yourself. Stop trying to enrich yourself. Jesus says, whoever exalts himself is going to be abased. You're not very sober if you're trying to exalt yourself because you're going to be abased. That crash is going to hurt. The Bible tells us not to think of yourself more whole, highly than you ought to think, but think soberly. So stop blessing yourself. Maybe you're like Belshazzar. God's given you a gift. God's blessed you with some ability. God's blessed you with some position in life. God's blessed you with some character traits that are notable. And, and praise the Lord. People will blow that trumpet. 
that's, that's okay. God's ordained that. Daniel was told by the angels, you're a man greatly beloved. That's not a problem. Paul would write to people and say, oh, my beloved, the joy in my, you're my joy in my crown. That's okay. But if they started, you know, embroidering joy and crown on all their clothing, you know what I mean? And walking around and parading themselves as such, now we're not living soberly. That's all we're saying. We're saying let's just stay sober so we can enjoy God's blessings and giftings and be thankful and raise our hands and say, praise the Lord. The Bible tells us who makes you to differ from one another. And what do you have, if it's worth talking about, that you didn't receive from God? Now, if you received it, why are you glorying as if you generated it? And why do you let other people do the same thing? Why don't you say, as I did about my trailer, it's a rather trivial example, but I did. I said, Jesus blessed me with that, and you shouldn't take his name in vain. And I said it nicely, by the way. That was my whole intention. I care for this man. I don't really know him, but I can care for people I don't even know. I did care for him. But, I, but what I'm trying to say is, as opposed to me prancing around and like, yeah, I bet you never saw a trailer like that, I'm starting to get intoxicated because God's the one who got me that trailer. I didn't get that on my own. You think you did? You're crazy. You need to spend some time in the grass like an ox to get your head straightened out. Remember Lucifer? He blessed himself. He looked at his form until it began to sparkle in the cup. Do you remember the prohibition against looking at the wine when it looks so enticing and so inviting? Don't look at it. Lucifer looked at his form until he got intoxicated with himself. You know, the Bible speaks of women as being, well, in the language of 1 Corinthians 7, it speaks if they are past the flower of their age. I'm bringing up the concept of the flower, the flowering span or season that a woman enters into. You won't throw tomatoes at me if I tell you that all of you have basically passed the flower of your age, but not every last little one. And while the little one right now is, well, I guess she's somewhat awake, and I can't digress into this. I'll fit this into some other talk or message at some point. But I have it on my heart to say at least something about this, and that is, that is the sin of Lucifer, to start looking at your form and start feeling like, whoa, <laughs> there's something here. I got some power, and I want to share that power, and I want to show that power. That's called getting drunk. The handwriting's on the wall. You're going to crash. You're going to be hurt. You're going to have pain. You're going to miss out on blessings. I'm warning you. And we'll continue to do so. The Bible says that Lucifer was perfect in all his ways. Yeah, until he started staring at himself too much. He, he was lifted up because of his beauty, the Bible tells us. And then as this relates to the ministry, the Bible says a novice, an inexperienced individual should not go into the ministry because he might be lifted up with pride and fall into the condemnation of the devil. So there's a principle here, like we've been talking about throughout this entire set of teachings. Men are supposed to set the example. Men are supposed to be able to be allowed privileges and blessings and gifts things and know how to control themselves in that context and manifest sobriety to the church. And it obviously needs to start with pastors and leadership. And there's a danger. There's a danger for all of us. When you're young and inexperienced, and obviously when you're older, you still have to learn along the way, but 
The Bible is just being out front with us that, like I just said, women will go through the flowering period and you can get all caught up with yourself. Even men can do the same thing. That is not sober-mindedness. And the Bible exhorts even the young ladies to be sober-minded. So secondly, number one, stop blessing yourself. Number two, stop staring at your reflection in your fantasy mirror and rather look at yourself in the mirror of God's Word. What I mean by the fantasy mirror, and I'm quite serious, there's, a, there's an occult element to this. Why? Because the devil will speak back to you. When you stare in the fantasy mirror and you say, mirror, mirror on the wall, who is the wisest of them all? Who is the best preacher of them all? Who's the prettiest in the church? Who has the best character? Who has the most kindness? Who gives the most in this church? Mirror, mirror on the wall, who is the best at everything? And funny that the mirror always says, why you are. Why magically you are. You are the wisest, the smartest, the deepest, the most understanding, the most even, the most balanced, the best at carpentry, the best at sewing, the best at knitting, the best at cleaning, the best at singing, the best at everything. If you stare at that fantasy mirror, you're going to get intoxicated with yourself. Look at the Word of God and then remember what the Word of God has shown you because if you don't, then the Bible says you will deceive yourself. You're like someone who comes to a mirror and this mirror tells you the truth about yourself, namely God's Word, and then instead of being a doer, you're a drinker. You look, you see who you are, you're not a doer of that thing, you just turn away and you go back to drinking from your fantasy mirror and you won't get sober that way. If you go to the Word of God, you're going to hear things like this. Here's where you can learn from somebody else. I said you can read biography and get sobered up. The Apostle Paul says, in me dwells no good thing. I mean, you need to stare at that for a while. I don't mean to pick on anybody or anything, but I, you, know, you could take Dathan and Abiram, for example, right? Say, Dathan and Abiram, why don't you read that a few times? This is the Apostle Paul. And in him was no good thing. Now do that. Stop pretending there is. Why are you telling other people that there are? People think it's a lack of qualifications, maybe, in someone like myself. If I don't tell you that I am this, that, and the other thing, and so you can run out and tell everybody else that that's what I am. I mean, I don't go out of my way to live in false humility, but I tell you honestly, yeah. <laughs> I mean, in myself, no. And you shouldn't expect it. Meaning, I don't want you to see in me that there's sourcing in me. Do you know what I mean? Like, I'm not the source. I don't control it. I don't own it. I hopefully live in it, and it can become more and more part of who I am, but even that, by God's grace, I'm not the source of anything. In me, there dwells no good thing. Stare in that mirror until you can say that with your soul. That'll sober you up. You won't be wandering around as you're praying, aren't I pretty wonderful? You know, some people are telling me I'm not, but God, I really am, aren't I? Isn't it true? And the angel said, oh, yes, you are, William. No, sober up. The Bible says that every man at his best estate is altogether worthless. Sober up. The Bible says if a man thinks himself to be something, when as a matter of fact all of us are nothing, you are deceiving yourself, you're drunk, you're intoxicated with your own image in your fantasy mirror. Look in the Word of God and sober up.
One minister says, it is the silly person who thinks too highly of himself. When you put yourself up against God, you are a pitiful sight indeed. He is the Almighty God, creator of the universe, and you are a mere speck of dust. We must all come to say with the psalmist, what is man that you are mindful of him? And then finally, how to sober up? Stop blessing yourself. Secondly, stop looking at your reflection in the fantasy mirror and look at yourself in the Word of God. And then thirdly and finally, serve Jesus' church rather than yourself. Luke 17 says that even after we've served Jesus with everything He's required of us, it's not time to sit down and take a drink. Have the Lord serve you your blessings now. It's time for you to say, I'm an unprofitable servant. I've done what was commanded of me. That'll keep you sober. Do you understand? Yeah. You know, I fast and pray. I preach. You know, I do this. I do this. Oh, Lord. You know, it's like, wait a minute, William. Wait a minute, sister, brother, whomever you are. Why are you here? I'm here to serve Jesus' church. You didn't maybe get the notice you wanted today? Okay, why are you here? I'm here to serve Jesus' church. Could you do that? Yes. All right, then great. Does this make any sense to you? I'm saying if you will serve Jesus' church and not be so concerned about yourself, you'll be sobered up. Remember, as it relates to being a part of Jesus' church, Paul tells us very clearly in Romans 11, you better sober up. He says, do not be high-minded, but fear. Because if God didn't spare the natural branches, He might not spare you. Do you understand that? That'll keep you sober. If while you're serving the Lord, you also hear God say, you might be in His church, you might be in His family, but if you don't live uprightly, I might cut you out. If you have any sense at all, that'll sober you up. He that glories, dear brothers and sisters, let him glory in the Lord. For not he that commends himself is approved, but whom the Lord commends. And he will only commend those of us who choose to live a sober life by the Spirit. Why don't you stand with me as we enter into the communion of the bread and cup?